This is Acts 17. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they, ha and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Redemption Tucson. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, it's always a privilege and an honor to get to preach. Usually I'm leading the music, but, but this week we got Wes Mesa leading us, and I just want to say I'm really encouraged and thankful for, for Josue and his team and just Redemption West Mesa as a, as a whole. It, it, it's so helpful for us, church. If you weren't in here for the call to worship, one, I'd encourage you to get here a little earlier uh, so you can hear that. Uh, that's, a little, that's a little plug there. Uh, but, but Josue said so well that we, we, we need to see, and it's moments like this in our church where we, we, we see worshiping God as bigger than our one cultural expression. And that is so good for us. It doesn't mean it's comfortable, right? Like, I don't speak Spanish. So, so half of this isn't comfortable for me, but it's good for me. And it's good for me because we worship a big and glorious and majestic God. And, and one day, we're all going to gather around his throne and people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language are going to worship Jesus. Amen. And so Josue and the team, thanks for preparing us for that day. Thanks for preparing us for that day. Um, if you got your Bibles, I, I got way more to say on that subject, but that's a sermon for another day. If you got your Bibles, we're in Acts 17 today. So you can start turning there. If you don't own a Bible, we want to get one into your hands. Uh, we believe that the Word of God is the very Word of God. And it is where ultimate truth is found. So if you don't have a Bible, we want to get one in your hand. Could you raise your hand if you need a Bible? Uh, and just keep those hands up and someone will get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, this is a gift for you. Uh, if you do own a Bible, just leave it on your seat when, you're, uh, when, you're, when, you're, when you leave the auditorium, please. Let me pray for us. We'll get rolling it Keep those hands up, and uh, we'll, we'll get after it here in Acts 17, starting out in verse 1. God, you are majestic and glorious and beautiful. You are magnificent, Lord. And I pray that you would be magnified in this place. I pray that we would see you as you truly are. I pray that this time would elevate our view of you, King Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd use me in spite of me. I pray that my tone, the words I say, everything that is going to be communicated would be to that end. I pray that I would decrease, you would increase. People would not um, hear my words, but they'd hear your word. Lord, use me in spite of me. I'm not so intelligent or articulate to be able to communicate this word uh, 
as it ought to be. I pray that you would speak through me and give me the ability to do this, Lord. We need you, every one of us. Give us uh, a heart that is soft and ears that can hear your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen. If you're taking notes, uh, I, got, I got four things to help us track. They're going to be up here on the screen, and most of the scripture is going to be up here on the screen. So here's where we're going. Four points. One, the gospel turns the world upside down. Two, the gospel invites examination. Also, the gospel dismantles idols. And lastly, the gospel requires response. So that's where we're going. Let's get to work. Point one, verse one, chapter 17. The gospel turns the world upside down. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, little trick, pastor trick, say it fast, say it confidently. No one knows how to pronounce it. You know, so you get that going on. So they're not going to correct you. And they came to Thessalonica. That one's for free. Uh, and they were there in the synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So where we're at in, in Acts 17 is, is the reality of Paul is miraculously released from prison. We learned about that last week. Paul's miraculously released from prison and he travels to Thessalonica. And, and that city might sound familiar because Paul wrote two letters to the church there. And that's called First and Second Thessalonians that can be found later on in your Bibles. And so Paul, when he enters the city, he enters into the synagogue, which is the gathered assembly of the Jews. And what does he do? He reasons from the scriptures. See, see, Paul brings people to where ultimate truth is found, not merely in his words, but in God's word. And, and this is one maybe apologetic for why we preach through books of the Bible here at Redemption Tucson. Here's the gathered assembly of Christians. And I'm going to do my best to, to, to reason from the scriptures with us this morning. And, and, and I pray my words are helpful. I, I pray that that's the case. But, but God's word is truth. And the truth will set you free. He said the word is, God's word is a lamp unto our feet. And it's a light unto our path. God's word is like a two-edged sword. It's sharp. It's cutting. It exposes us. It reveals us. It, it, it changes us. It molds us. And it forms us to be more like Christ. And ultimately, the word centers on, it drives home and it reveals the glorious truth that Paul says in verse 3, that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And I want to say, maybe if you're new to church or if you were kind of drugged here by a family member or a friend, Christ is not a last name, it's a title. So it's Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that he is Lord. This is what the Bible is communicating, that he is Lord, that he is the one by whom and for whom all things were created. He, he's the one who died and he's the one who rose again. We just did our confession and insurance of grace that Jesus is not on that cross. He's not in a tomb. He rose again. We stand in remembrance of that and in that identity. He is the awesome and majestic one, this Jesus. He's redeemer. He's reconciler. He's restorer. And, and, and Paul comes and he preaches the scriptures, these scriptures that point to Jesus, the author of life. Amen? I'm going to say amen a few times throughout this sermon. Just it, It's saying, I agree. I agree. Jesus is the author of life. Amen? Amen. So, so my prayer is that this time would elevate our view of Jesus, the author of life. And, and let me tell you something about Jesus and about the scriptures. They're not comfortable. They're not comfortable. They expose us. They reveal us. They change us. They mold us. They, they turn our world upside down. And we don't like that so much. We don't invite that so much. But it's good for us and we need it. 
So, so let's see how they respond in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And continuing, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Every single one of my points starts with the gospel is something. The gospel requires something. And what, what, what the gospel means is simply good news. And the good news, it's a radical movement of inclusion through Christ alone. What I mean is that women, men, Greek, Jew, the influential, uninfluential, rich, poor, they're all invited. They're all included in hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of God. And, and some respond in faith, but the Jews are jealous, which really just echoes all of Jesus's ministry and really all of Acts up to this point. And we're going to talk a lot about idols this morning because Paul talks a lot about idols in this text. And an idol is anything that we use to replace God. So an idol can be anything or anyone. It's usually a good thing that we make a God thing, a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. So it could be a relationship or the idea of a relationship. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be your job, it could be money, it could be success, it could be power, it could be the local sports team, uh, conviction, uh, maybe not the local one, but a different one, and so conviction there. Uh, also, it could be uh, comfort or approval or control, all good things. But when we derive our meaning and identity and purpose and life, if this was taken away, we wouldn't just be disappointed, we'd be utterly devastated. We're finding ultimately our salvation and our life in something apart from Christ, which is pretty much the definition of idolatry. More on that in a little bit. But what we see here in, in this text is the gospel is confronting the Jews' idol of power and influence and fame. They, they had all the influence. They had all the fame. They had all this, this, this power. And the Christians come and the crowds follow them or the crowds would follow Christ and the Jews are jealous. They want their power. They want their influence more than they want Christ. And what do they say? Verse six. You can, you can throw it back on the screen if you'd like to. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I think that's an incredibly poetic and, and beautiful and true phrase that, that, that this gospel turns the world upside down. The gospel of Jesus Christ does indeed turn the world upside down. Jesus is not merely content to be a nice addition to your life. He is life itself. He is life itself. He's the Lord and he's calling us to live all of life all for him. We say here at Redemption, all of life is all for Jesus. Whether you're at West Mesa or Tucson, you're going to hear that. All of life is all for Jesus, which means every aspect of your life, your relationships, your budget, your money, your school, your hobbies, your major, your friends, every single aspect of your work belongs to Jesus and is informed by Christ. See, Jesus, he turns our life upside down and he centers it around him. And this is good news because he is where life is found. 
So it's good news for us for, for him to turn our lives upside down. But he's also not just Lord of our life. His jurisdiction is not merely the seat of our hearts. He's Lord of all. And so he turns the whole world upside down, not just our world. He turns the whole world upside down. See, how he does that is, is through his death and resurrection, because his death and resurrection are, are the climax of all of history. See, it, it's there that in this event that he opened the door of salvation, that he defeated the power of sin. It, it's there that he ushered in the kingdom of God, which is the only kingdom of ultimate love and of justice and of peace and of mercy and of beauty and of salvation. And his people, us church, we get the great responsibility and privilege and calling to be ambassadors of this kingdom. We're, we're called to bring about this reality in our world, give a taste of it, be salt and light towards it in our world. And see, he, he's turning the world upside down. His kingdom, his gospel is turning the world upside down because as they accurately declare, there is another king, Jesus. There is another king, Jesus. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. The kingdom is not Rome's. It's God's. And, and the Jews use politics to oppose the Christians. They use politics to oppose the way of Christ. They use politics to oppose Christ. Let the application maybe sink in. And here's the thing. Even Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And render to God what is God's. Everything. Right? So, so here's the thing. These Christians, Paul, and, and the surrounding audience recognizes this. This was a major conflict, a major tension point with the early church. They will not submit to the political order. They will not bow to a lesser throne. They will not just get in line and bend a knee to Caesar for there is another king, Jesus, the king of kings, right? The king of kings. And oh, Christian, oh, Christian, our allegiance and our affection is supremely wrapped up in Christ. Not in Caesar, not in Rome, not in the ideologies of the political left or the right, not in the Oval Office, no, not in anything. Our allegiance is to Christ. Before we're Americans, we are Christians, church. And our greatest allegiance is to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourself. Amen? Amen. Even when these lesser thrones would tell us to abandon it. I don't care what person, people, ideology, etc. There's another King Jesus who rose from the dead. He is Lord. Our allegiance is to him, regardless of what others would say. There's a lot more I want to say on that, but we're going to keep going to our text. They can't bear the good news, and so they drive its messenger away, Paul. Uh, so back to our points. One, the gospel does turn the world upside down. And number two, the gospel invites examination. So let's pick it up in verse 10. 
the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The, the Bereans, they received the word with eagerness. See, see Paul, he's, he's preaching the scriptures, but these guys, they're examining they're, they're studying, they're seeking, they're, they're submitting to the authority of Scripture. They're seeking to see if what Paul is saying is so. And we can't miss what happens in verse 12. Many of them believe. And maybe why is that? Because the Bible's all about Jesus. The Bible's all about the King, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. When you open your Bible, you see Jesus. When they examined further, they saw Jesus. Would we open our Bibles and see Jesus as well? And I, Something as I was preparing this, I just felt like I ha had to say, especially as, as we live in a college town and just in our current philosophical landscape, and that's, it can't be missed. These, these people, they examine the gospel, they examine the scriptures deeper, and it proves to be true. And, we need to understand the gospel, the good news. It can handle examination. It can handle science. It can handle logic. It can handle scrutiny. See, see, the gospel is not opposed to critical thinking. The gospel is not opposed to critical thinking. And in fact, it necessitates it if we're going to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, right? And all our strength. See, the gospel, the good news of God, it, in, it invites, it can handle, it stands up to, and it's proven upon further examination. See, my, my challenge for us is maybe dive into the scriptures with eagerness and see if it is so. Church, I want to encourage you. We have a faith, but it is not a blind faith. We have a faith but it is not a blind faith. And I want us to notice a key difference between the Bereans and the Thessalonians. One group has a submission to the scripture and one group stands above scripture. And I'd ask you, what about you? Are you submitting to the scriptures as the authority in your life? Are you standing above Scripture and picking and choosing what aspects of it you're going to submit to? Are you going to let inform your life? Or are you allowing the Scriptures, the Word, inform your life? Does Scripture define your life? Does it inform your life? Does it shape your life? Or does the pervasive culture and world around you? What's really discipling us, church? An hour and a half on a Sunday morning? or the countless hours of entertainment and social media and talk news and fill in the blank. And I'm not opposed to these things, but they shouldn't be discipling us more than the word of God. Are you in the word? Look at me, church. It's really hard to have your life defined and informed by the scriptures if you're not in them. It's really hard to have your life informed and shaped by the gospel if you're not saturated by it. 
it's really challenging. And Jesus says, to drive this point home, is that man doesn't live by bread alone. He says, no, but, but, but he's quoting, quoting scripture here, but every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. He also says, I am the bread of life. And, and, and Jesus in his word, the application here is that it's food for nourishment for our lives. And, and, and some of us, if we're honest, we're starving this morning. And we should be feasting. We're starving and we should be feasting. Amen? And here's the thing, just, just maybe to, to, to drive this, to, just an, an analogy here. So I used to be an athlete. Keyword used to in some of this. Uh, I'm thankful you guys didn't laugh. That makes me feel a little better. Thank you for that encouragement. Wow, I love you guys. Uh, and so you get that going on. So, so here's the thing. So when I used to be an athlete, play baseball, football, basketball, uh, if I wanted to perform and see victory and, and live the life I, I wanted to live there, I needed to train physically. And I needed to eat. Like, if I would have rolled into a game, say I'm pitching or something like that, and I haven't eaten for six days, like, I'm a baby. I'm going to be curled up in, like, the, the fetal position just crying. Like, I'm not going to be out there throwing, throwing heat. Like, I'm going to be pretty useless for the game. I'm going to be pretty useless for, 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 for the life that I'm, I'm called. I'm on the team, called to live. And many of us came into here not having eaten since last Sunday. We're starving. And we wonder, why can I not see victory in this area of my life? Why, why am I just, it feels like I'm going around the, the merry-go-round carousel again, just on and on. Here we go. And I'm not saying this is going to fix all your problems. Maybe someplace to start is, are you starving? When God offers a feast, an application here has got to be to get in the word. Let us be like the Bereans, studying, examining, getting in the word. Let's get back to our text. So, so the Jews in Thessalonica, they hear that Paul's in Berea and so they drive him away and they send him and Paul ends up in Athens. Paul ends up in Athens, which is in Greece. So uh, let's, keep, let's keep rolling with our points. The gospel turns the world upside down. The gospel invites examination and the gospel dismantles idols. Pick it up in verse 16. This is where we're gonna spend most of our time is in this section. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Ancient historian Petronius said, kind of tongue-in-cheek, it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Imagine the site. Walking in, you got the Parthenon, which is the temple to Athena, Athens, hence the title. And uh, you've got all these statues, all these idols and Paul is provoked. And again, we need to, we, we so quickly want to jump to like, we're not idolatrous people. I don't go to the Parthenon and, you know, think, think that Athena is a god. You know, I don't, I don't dress up and do that stuff. But yet, I challenge that. And this, again, this is very convicting to me. That, but we'll dress up in red and blue, dress like a wildcat, pay our tithes and offerings, go to a stadium and cheer and sacrifice. But we're not idol worshipers, right? Like, again, an idol is usually a good thing. That is a God replacement. Anything. And here's the thing. When we find our, our comfort, when we find our control, when we find our, our, our approval, when we look to a relationship, when we look to status or success as our life, it will not deliver. An idol is when we start to find these things apart from Christ. We need to find our approval in Christ. Find our, 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 our relationship in Christ. We need to find our control and our comfort in Christ. For that's where life is found. Idols promise so much and they cannot deliver. 
Jesus alone delivers and satisfies the deepest longings and desires of our life. Scripture says that Christ came that we might have life and life abundantly. Scripture also says that in your presence, God, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Take something like lust, it lies. Saying, hey, it's innocent. It won't, it won't, it, it, nothing wrong here. You'll, you'll, you're fine. Not realizing that it leads to death. Where Jesus leads to life. Run to that which is truly life. Christ, amen? And, and here's the thing, church. Look at me. A spouse, kids, your job, money, success, approval. These are all good things that make terrible gods. Make terrible gods. Good things that make terrible gods. Pick it up in verse 18. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Which I want to say that term in the Greek is just as condescending as it is in English. The babbler wished to say. Um, he's, he's before, again, these, these influential Greeks here. And others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, I want to I pause here and recognize who these people are. Uh, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And so uh, I don't assume that many of us are well-versed in ancient Greek philosophy. Um, again, these are, these are really affluent, likely wealthy, upper-class folks. Very educated and, and you got these two philosophies that are kind of opposed to each other. One is the Epicurean philosophy, which is to give in to pleasure. This is where they think life is found in giving in to pleasure, giving in to passions. You pursue them, you embrace them, pursue comfort and, and hedonism and pleasure. You party. And, and, and I went to a university called Chico State, which is not exactly the Harvard of the West. Uh, it's, it's more closely related to like ASU culture. And so I can, I can understand a good time. I can sympathize with a little bit. And here's the thing. Last week, Dave, uh, which he likes to, you know, stand on his highbrow at U of A, and he likes to, you know, kind of poke fun at some ASU culture, and he said something about beer pong being a, a field of study there. And I want to say at Chico State, that's a very serious field of study, and I don't appreciate the, the, the mockery here, all right? Uh, you know, the, the Epicurean way of carpe diem, or as the kids used to say, I know they don't say it anymore, but YOLO, and, and, the, and the whole thing there. And, and the Stoic philosophy is kind of the exact opposite in many ways. And it's, it's saying pursue duty, conquer passions. It's not in, in, in fulfilling your desires, but abstaining from your desires, which is where life is found. It, it says life is jacked up. There's nothing you can do about it. Deal with it, which that sounds awful. Like, it's just, my goodness. Some of you are there and, and I just want to say, man, that sounds awful. It, it kind of sounds to me like if you took every stereotype of a Marine, like that crusty old Marine, and then like every country song ever written and you put them together and that's like the stoic <laughs> philosophy. And, and uh, so that's, that's, that, that's really Paul's audience here, uh, kind of. I don't think either one of those would appreciate that, uh, that, that analysis there. But, but they're, they're curious about what Paul has to say. And so they take him to this place called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus is, is the marketplace of ideas and, and, and worldviews and stances. They're, they're appreciated. They're analyzed there. You could almost say it's like the people's core of morality and religion. That's where Paul's at. Again, influencers. And on this hill, all they do, in verse 21 it says, all they do is spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All they do is spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. But Paul comes in with an ancient message. 
that as we've said almost every week, is very old and very new. He comes in with this ancient message that, that the Messiah is going to come. He's going to set things right. He's going to save God's people. He's going to restore God's world. And Paul's saying this Messiah, this one that was foretold of old is Jesus. He came. He's the Christ. And he died and he rose again to accomplish this purpose. And I want us to notice that, that Paul's message is consistent. He's like a one-hit wonder, a one-trick pony. He's got one song and he's going to sing it and he's going to clap to it. And it's Jesus in the resurrection. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor, Greek or Jew. He doesn't care if you're, like last week, uh, 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 a slave girl. He doesn't care if you're a Roman centurion. It doesn't matter. Like, it's Jesus in the resurrection. You're getting the one, you're getting the one hit wonder. Like, this is what he is doing. This is his message. It is the same. It's come up like three times already. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Christ and him crucified. The message is the same. But... It gets packaged a little different depending on who he's talking with here. See, Paul would later write, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. And what Paul's showing them is that the gospel is something entirely different. It's not something in between those two philosophies. It's something entirely different. This is unlike anything they've ever heard. This is unlike anything the Jews had ever heard of. The Messiah is going to suffer and die? Something altogether unique, not something in the middle. Altogether unique is this gospel. And Paul's going to share the good news that this, this gospel, it dismantles idols. So let's pick it up in verse 22. Let's see how he reasons with the Greeks. We see how he did it with the Jews. Let's see how he reasons with the Greeks. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship— I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. I got to pause there. What I need us to recognize here is that Paul builds bridges. See, see his approach, it's really thoughtful. It's really thoughtful. It's, as one pastor said, it's timeless truths and timely methods. He, he seeks to find common ground, right? Like, he doesn't start with, Paul doesn't roll into the Areopagus and go, you idiots! Like, widowed idols everywhere! Like, you think the gods are on Mount Olympus? Go climb it! Like, he doesn't start with this, right? Like, fools! Like, he doesn't, he doesn't roll in and just put people on blast, he doesn't start with that. He finds common ground. He doesn't go, oh, to the unknown God. As if some foreign divinity is going to come down and be like, where's my statue? And they're like, quick, like, write it down. Like, what's your name? Like, how do you spell that? Like, you know, as if he's like, oh, good. There I am. Like, he doesn't start with just saying, you're so stupid. Like, that's not, and what I want to say, that's really bad evangelism. Uh, that's your approach. You really need to uh, draw it from the Bible. Um, he contextualizes the gospel message so that his audience, they can understand it and respond to it. Look, look what he does. Let's, let's go on in verse 24. And we're going to read a little bit of a longer section here. Let's see what Paul has to say and just saturate in this for a little bit. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, 
having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. There is so much there. But this could have been a sermon in and of itself. But he explains, Paul explains that what they worship is unknown. What does he start with? This unknown God. What you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, that God can be known. That God can be known. He, he's totally reshaping the paradigm of the character of God to these people. He, he's saying God's not some distant foreign idea. He is near. He is relational. God can be known. He's also not like an image of stone or gold or silver. God is much more glorious than that. God is not made in man's image or imagination, same root, but man is formed and made in God's image. Man is formed in God's image. He's far more glorious than we could ever imagine, Paul is saying. He's also saying that God, he acts and he moves and he's, he's lovingly engaged in the lives of his people. He even goes on to say that, that he appoints the time and the dwelling place of his people. And I want to say there's an application for every single person in this room right now. You didn't choose the time you were born. You didn't choose the location you were born in. One, that should make us really humble. And two, God has appointed you to where you're at. He's brought you to this moment to sit in this auditorium to hear his word proclaimed. God is lovingly engaged in your life. See, Paul is saying here, church, that God is transcendent and creator and awesome and majestic. And he's also near and relational. He's saying, he's saying God is good and he's glorious. He's Lord and he's love. See, see, Paul is completely redefining the character of God. He's saying the God, God is not here to use you and abuse you. God loves you. He's not saying the gods are here to kill you, but there's one God and he died for you. This is completely reshaping their character of God. He's also saying, he's going to also redefine how they worship God, if you notice that. God's not served by human hands as if he needs something from us. God's not incompetent, or he doesn't have the ability to be able to, to, to do what he wants to do. He's not sitting around saying, there's just one of me, so, you know, I need some help, guys. Like, God, Paul is saying, this is not the character of God. He's also saying, yeah, God's not lacking in power. He's not lacking in ability. We're not serving him because he needs something from us. He's also not so insecure that he needs some words of affirmation from us on a Sunday morning morning. He's not sitting there saying, oh shucks, you really think so? Like you really think I'm that loving and good? Like oh that just warms my heart. Like that is not why we serve and worship God as if he's some insecure like one of the Greek gods. Like they just need to be appeased. Tell them some nice things and they'll get off your back. No, this God is good and transcendent and glorious and he invites us to worship him for relationship with him. This is altogether unique. This is altogether unique. God invites us to worship and serve him so we can have a relationship with him. Because guess what, church? Press in. Look at me. God loves you. God 
loves you. And in a church like ours, many times we might want to explain that away. Add a bunch of footnotes to it. We need to sit in a really simple and beautiful truth. That's that God loves you. And some of you might be sitting here going, how do you know that? I would echo what the scripture says, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. I would say this, how how do you know God loves you? Look no further than the cross. See, God is perfect. He's holy. And he can't tolerate sin. He wouldn't be good if he just said, eh. I just turn a blind eye to all the atrocities in the world. And if we're honest, all the evil in the world, if we're honest, we look in our own heart and we say, we're evil as well. We're sinful as well. So God can't overlook it. The wages of sin is death. We talk about this almost every Sunday. And the good news is God says, you deserve death, I'll die for you. All the other gods say, you die for me. God says, I'll die for you. You want to know God loves you, look no further than the cross. You want to know that God is just, look no further than the cross. And it's not that we're lovely. It's not that we're special. It's that in Christ we're perfect. We are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. But in Christ, when he dies in our place for our sin and we, we transfer our trust to him, we respond and surrender in love to him. We're now in Christ and we're perfect as Christ is perfect. He takes all of our sin. He gives us all of his righteousness. You want to know God loves you? Look to the cross. I just want to ask you, will you surrender to Jesus today? to this love, to this Christ, to this King, to this Savior. Will you surrender to him today? Let's pick it up in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. Paul's going to be kind of bringing to a conclusion here of his speech on the, on the Areopagus here. Actually, I'm going to back up here. There's something else I want to say before we get to that. And, and that's that, that Paul gives a great example. I, I know I touched on this, but I, I want to hit on this, actually. Paul gives a great example on how to, how to engage people with the gospel. I think, I think we need, need to hear this, that, that Paul never compromises the truth. But he always contextualizes the truth to a particular people so they can, they can hear it. Even in verse 28, you might notice I skipped that. You can see it in your, in your scriptures, that, that he even quotes their poets. He even quotes their poets. Um, and what he's saying here is, is, and maybe why he does this, is, is because there's bits and pieces of truth everywhere. Because all people, again, are made in the image of God. But um, saving truth, ultimate truth, is, is really only found, is absolutely only found in the Scripture, in Christ alone. And, and, and here's the thing about the gospel. It, it's, it's offensive in a pluralistic culture. Because it says there's only one truth. It says there's only one way. Jesus goes on, uh, I think I've got this up here, John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way. He says, I'm the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, the question is, will you surrender to Jesus? 
Because he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Amen? All right, let's get to verse 30 now. And the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Church, we got to hear for a second here that Jesus is not a philosophy. He is not a set of doctrines. He's not a dogma. He is a person who rose from the dead. He is a person who rose from the dead. The dividing line, the watershed moment, the climax, the turning point of all of history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this event, it's the center of God's plan and it's central evidence for us, for you and me to turn to Jesus in faith. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hinge point of everything because it tells us also that Jesus is Savior and he's Lord. That he's Savior and Lord. And he's Lord and he's going to judge the world. What that means is he's going to hold everybody accountable. Hold everyone accountable. And because of that, he is calling all people everywhere to repent. He's calling all people everywhere to repent. And repent uh, just means that we would turn from sin to Jesus, that we turn our affections and our allegiance from sin and self to Jesus, that we would abandon sin and cling to Jesus, that we would forsake sin and love Jesus, a transfer of faith from our own righteousness and ability, our own record to Christ's ability, record, and perfection. Paul is calling, Jesus is calling us to repent, to turn from sin and self to Jesus. calling us to respond, to respond in repentance. So in closing here, guys, the gospel, it requires response. It requires response. Let's see how they respond in verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. I just want to encourage us here to close, guys, in the reality that the gospel is good news for, for, for it proclaims that there's a God who can be known, that there's a God who can be known, and he reveals himself in Scripture. He reveals himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he is the creator who is just and holy and mighty, and he is awesome and he is love, that, that he loves us so much that even though we've declared ourselves enemies of God, through our sin, that he took that punishment and pain and death upon himself through Jesus. But the good news is the grave could not hold him. He rose again, defeating sin and defeating death. And he will return once again in judgment, and he will return to restore the world. And, and, and this gospel, this good news, it requires a response. Apathy is not an option. You're either going to believe this, and many of us in this room do. We actively believe this. Some of us, I pray, would choose to believe this for the first time today. I, we're either going to respond and believe this. We're going to respond in faith, or we're going to reject this. Or some of us might be in the place of we're wanting to respond by simply hearing more. But I pray that every one of us, every one of you, would respond in faith, in surrender, and in love to Jesus.
Church, let us respond now to our great and glorious Savior. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are mighty. You are awesome. You are glorious. You are the Savior of the world. You invite us to relationship with you. Thank you that you change us. You mold us. Thank you that you call us from death to life. Thank you that you call us from idols to the living God, to yourself. God, thank you for all that you have done. God, thank you that you love us. You don't call us to earn your love, but you say that you love us and you call us to respond in faith and surrender. And I pray that we would do that this morning. I pray that we would respond to you. I pray that we'd see you for who you truly are, glorious and majestic and awesome and loving and kind and just. I pray that we would respond to you now. You are worthy. You are the only one who can satisfy and deliver. You're the only one who is glorious. God, we respond to you now. In your name we pray. Amen.